President, dear friends, may I first of all say how delighted I am to be your guest of honour at this gathering of scholars to celebrate a true giant of literature. And I'm also very glad on Sabina's part that we are both part of this tribute to Eugene O'Neill. I'm not so sure as to what the response of the ghost of Eugene O'Neill might be to the idea that a gathering of eminent scholars had spent four days in the west of Ireland discussing the content, forms of production and legacy of his work might be. Perhaps he would see it, I would like to think, as a belated recognition offered in the setting of the descendants of the common ancestors uh, and that he would see it as such. So Maruktron Heren as President of Ireland, I want to thank all of you for coming here and to thank you for your scholarship and for the significance that you accord a writer that I believe indeed, as you have heard from Robert Dowling, I have said on more than one occasion, should be regarded as part of the Irish canon. I'm so pleased as well that uh, Jessica and Gabriel are here, who have in fact offered O'Neill's work with such distinction recently. I've spoken before of the connection of Eugene O'Neill with Irish history and literature, and indeed on the occasion Robert Darling has just referred to, I was giving the third Thomas Flanagan lecture in New York in May 2012. But then more recently, I was at University College Dublin on the occasion of the launch of uh, Robert Darling's own magnificent uh, biography of Judy of Eugene O'Neill, and that was in April 2016, uh, just over a year ago. And what a splendid biography it is. Eugene O'Neill is very well served by that, and all of us can be grateful for it. And I've been rereading it and thinking about it, and the rereading continued, and the rethinking and the redrafting of my remarks it considered until just a couple of hours, lasted until a few hours ago. I think, as I was preparing to come here too, I, I looked at and scanned the titles of the papers that have been being given over the last three days and the papers that will be given tomorrow. And what a magnificent gathering of good scholarship it is and drawn from experience of production, teaching, and of course, inevitably at international literary conferences, eclectic team, themes and new insights. So I concluded, therefore, that in offering preprandial remarks this evening, that something by way of personal reflection rather than any engagement with what is such a wide scholarship now might be most appropriate. And I also sought the necessary assurance that whatever I had to say wasn't delaying anybody from their food. <laughs> uh, as I said, <coughs> you will have had the benefit earlier of, of, in, just a couple of days ago, I've had the benefit of context, if I might put it like that, of hearing from Declan Kybert, who is a friend of so many years and the author of such good research 
uh, on Irish writing in English and the Irish language. That quotation has just been used, a quotation that occurs again and again in the work of those who've been involved in research on Eugene O'Neill. That is, the heartfelt tribute he offered to Irish playwrights whose works he had read and the productions of some of whose work he had seen on stage during the tumultuous but very revelatory visit of the Irish players to the United States in 1911. The effect on him of what he saw on stage was profound and indeed it is associated with a contradiction he would later make of his declared antipathy to memberships and accolades when he wrote, I was asked to be a member of the Irish Academy being organised by Sean, Yates and Robinson, etc., and accepted. Of course, I'm associate because not Irish-born, but this I regard as an honour, whereas other academies don't mean much to me. Anything with Yates, Shaw, A.E., O'Casey, O'Flaherty, Robinson in it, is good enough for me. At any rate, I'm pleased about all of this. And having said that, I'm myself very glad that you're all here for another reason. I had the great honour of speaking at, at the invitation of Nelson O'Callaghan, uh, Rachel, uh, at the opening of the Shaw Conference in, in Dublin. I do so congratulate Nelson and Audrey for all that they have organised. That quotation I've just made, Neil would, O'Neill would much later go on just to say, just a few short years before his death, in a conversation with Eugene Jr., as you have just heard from Robert, the one thing that explains more than anything about me is the fact that I'm Irish. That O'Neill, therefore, was proud of and attached importance to his Irishness is clearly not in question. But it is interesting, I want to suggest this evening, to speculate on which side Eugene O'Neill fell on the choice a choice that, that had to be made, a choice that Paula M. Kane summarised so many years ago as deciding whether in their production of John Middleton's Sings the Playboy of the Western World, the Irish players were putting it, as she said, staging a lie, or revealing, as others put it, revealing an, an inadmissible naked truth. The Irish Catholics in many of the cities where the productions took place in 1911 were anxious uh, that no ammunition be given uh, to a cultural elite who were aggressively defending a declining hegemony in cultural matters. Paula Kane in that right was writing, of course, in what I believe is an insufficiently recognised very important series edited by Patrick O'Sullivan his magnificent volumes on Irish migration, where the Irish have gone all over the world. And in that series, in the third volume, he drew on Doris Godwin's book, The Fitzgeralds and the Kennedys, to describe, for example, in Boston, the ambivalence that prevailed on the production in the Plymouth Theatre, John Millington Sings the Play by the Western World. She wrote of the reaction of the 21-year-old daughter of the mayor, Rose, daughter of Joseph Kennedy, and who would go on to be mother of John, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And Rose wrote, just those qualities of poverty, dirt and sloth, which the Yankees had always accused the Irish of having, 
And there they were depicted as characters of the old country, unvarnished and naked to the eye. Seeking to analyse what that Irishness offered on stage, which impressed O'Neill, really meant, what influenced it, what price was paid for offering it in the form it was offered, what it released and with what consequence will no doubt continue to be a matter for continuing scholarship. It is a scholarship that is very much worth the effort, and I believe not just for Irish-American studies, but also for migration theory, in which I've had an interest for a very long time, literary studies, and indeed what I might say is the neglected concept of transience in the social sciences on both sides of the Atlantic. That scholarship has to deal not only with the genius of O'Neill, but will gain from multidisciplinary speculation on the diverse and complex sources of his vulnerability. It is a vulnerability that is located certainly in his alcoholism, in his anger, an anger that without doubt did lead on occasion to violence. Those outbursts are expressions of frustration from proximate and personal experience. The regular loss of control of an impulse never addressed was and should never be, nor do I now excuse it, but it should never be excusable from anybody, anywhere. Neither can it be allocated to some feature of culture, Indeed, the stereotyping of some cultures as being inherently prone to violence is something that is very familiar to me. Just before I wrote the piece, I think, for uh, Druid Theatre in the 1980s, I had just come back from El Salvador. And I recall hearing from an ambassador, somebody at the highest diplomatic level, to El Salvador, the suggestion that the Salvadorian people were inherently violent. I remember Ambassador Negroponte saying to me, you know, in order to continue slaying each other, they strap the machete to their wrist so that they continue after they've lost fingers. Violent people, Mr. Higgins, violent people. I think some critics of O'Neill's work have perhaps allowed themselves to come too close to such lazy constructions of behavior as being in any sense inherently Irish, the phrase occurs in loose writing of doing an Irish and so forth. There are, however, I think, interesting deep sources of vulnerability that I believe flow from the migratory of families such as that of O'Neill's. The response to the transience that is at the heart of the migrant experience and the use and abuse of memory in interpreting what influences based on the source of the migration. These are just very, very important. It is very interesting, I remember, from looking when I first began writing about the concept of transience, about the deep humanity expressed by those who are not struck or not constrained by property in where they have lived to some extent, but have in fact been thrown on each other, as so many of the Irish, as so many migratory people are today, in terms of all that they have, is their deep human response to each other. But how have the Irish been managing this? 
It was necessary for a constructed communal, communal memory to be invoked as material, not just for art, but for life. And this is central to O'Neill, as it was to his father, and as it would be to his children. People constructing visions of a noble past, and so forth, and also of what might have been that was forgotten. When I wrote the piece for Druid, I remember in the 1980s, I wrote a wonderful phrase of a dear friend of mine, no longer with us, Frida Keelehan, wife of Peter Michael Keelehan, is just up the road in front of the hospital. And she would say to me occasionally, after generously providing me with lunch when I needed it, we were big people, 40 bullocks dancing on the lawn. In fact, I think it is very interesting. I want to suggest that part of the legacy of Eugene O'Neill to theatre not only in the United States, but in the world, has been the new ground he carved out for the use of memory, as not being ever simply an invocation of anything shared for the purposes of establishing a setting, but also for which he would be most notable, in my view, as a scalpel, an instrument that in its different forms could become available for the psychic destruction of a protagonist. This would impact not only on his own life, but on the lives of others with whom he shared communal, but also what were contrived mythic sources for memory. And indeed, I think it is important, temporary or permanent, I think it has no meaning the reach of the action that was involved covered periods of time not confined to any present circumstances. It, it somehow or another invoked the ancestors. In present circumstances, it functions as a kind of de profundus from below that claims and is claiming disgusts of space for souls that we are reminded are in bodies, a space that might be spiritual, which had, I think, where rituals had become formally insufficient, but never fully abandoned, as you have just heard, in the piece in which we have just heard. I found myself then on rereading Robert Darling's work, returning to a consideration of something very old, near eternal, the father-son relationship a theme that I suggest goes way beyond any Irishness in O'Neill, and it can be attributed to O'Neill's deep respect for classical Greek sources and forms of tragedy. In the Irish migratory experience, it has a particular meaning in terms of a response to dispossession. The devalued father of the family and children of the dispossessed is the father who has not been able to redress a great wrong or achieve excellence in the new conditions, the new destinations to which the family of the dispossessed has fled or migrated or been dispatched. The concessions made by those first-generation papers, parents to the opportunities offered at the point of destination of the migrant they constitute the father's achievement, and they are far short of either what has been lost, but what the myth demanded as a birthright to be recovered, or that which should have been attempted and which would have achieved greatness again, and be, albeit in a new setting. 
an ascent within the new middle class. Returning then to O'Neill's Irishness, it is important to understand the constitutive elements of that memory construction. I believe the powerful mythic force of the remembered Irish famine from which his grandparents had fled is important. If the Irish Times, remember, had it attributed the Irish famine of 1845 and 47 on occasion to uh, being an act of God, or the inherent backwardness of the Irish peasantry, which the Irish shared with other victims of colonization internationally, or indeed it has also been moved, it was moved two decades later to acknowledge in an editorial two decades after the famine, with its millions of deaths and the great exodus across the Atlantic, to say in their editorial, we've made a great mistake. They've gone to what will be one of the most powerful nations in the world, and they will never let us forget. It was thus for the Irish in O'Neill's circumstances in the United States. In their accounts they drew, but it is important to remember that they drew not only on personal and family experience, but also on the literary and competing ideological versions of the Irish famine of 1845-7 that were available to them. John, Jail's, John Mitchell's jail journal is often referred to. It was in every Irish house in Ireland. But it was important. And Mitchell's work is a part of a long contemplation on the Irish famine. And if his account is purposefully ideological, the relatively recent The Graves Are Walking of John Kelly of just a couple of years ago is a work of fine and balanced scholarship, which makes it impossible to deny both the political context and the ideological thrust uh, of the famine. The Irish in North America drew on such memories as the material for a founding myth for their migration. It was real, but in doing so they did not confine themselves to the events of the 19th century. They, as it can be understood, pushed their historical analysis back through centuries of dispossession. Also, I think, in that journey back through dispossession they encountered it spoke of a culture consciously crushed, despised, their language forbidden and then reduced to being regarded as the chanka and the mokt, the language of the poor forced in the cr their being crushed to recognize they to speak the new language to survive in foreign destinations, regarded as inferior. The Irish language was a language forbidden to be used. So then they're drawing on all of this, they invoked a mythical island of kings and chiefs, a form of nobility in striking contrast to the circumstances within which they now struggled. And thus, indeed as Robert Darling has noted, one can understand easily the attraction Sean O'Fallon's, the great O'Neill had for Eugene O'Neill. It is not accidental. It simply fits. One can see too how the project of Yeats and his allies could be questioned as to sufficiency. What was afoot on these, in these productions in, in, uh, in 1911? How close was it and to what was being sought 
and whose project was at stake. And if you were in Boston, like Rose Fitzgerald was, and you were dealing with the ascendancy, who were in decline, as I put it, but who enjoyed a cultural hegemony. And if you knew that on the visit that Lady Gregory was staying with one of the people of that group, and then how were you then to interpret the rather mild reaction that took place and which she, which, and, where, and of which she wrote. Robert Darling quotes from a draft of Eugene O'Neill's The Hair of the Dog. That's right, a hair of the dog that bit you, and they're all the same dog. And his name is Greed of Living, and when he bites, there is a fever comes, and a great thirst, and a great drinking to kill it, and a grand drunk, and a terrible hangover, and a headache, and remorse of conscience, and a sick, empty stomach without greed or appetite. But take a hair of the dog, and the sun will rise again for you, and the appetite, and the thirst will come back, and you can forget and begin all over. What a powerful metaphor for late 19th and early 20th century capitalism and the kind of insatiability that is released in an unregulated capitalism as people of which the Skidelskis has written quite recently, Father and Son. There is, I believe, in what Singh sought, perhaps the closest approximation to O'Neill. A multitude of interpretations are available for what Singh sought to achieve in the play by the Western world. Years ago, I quoted his letter on what he called the ungodly rock of fat-faced, sweaty-headed swine, which he suggested were in Dublin and in Kingstown and also in all country towns. I so recall I was working here as a young lecturer when I wrote those early letters, on the, those early papers on the Gombin men. And how quickly people moved to attack the use of the concept which I had traced as somehow or another being an exceptional or a contradiction what was the unquestioned modernization theory of the time and the natural evolution into the present through the banking system of contemporary Ireland and the contemporary world. This peasantry which Singh invoked, I think makes, it, I think in a way, one has to question as to whether many who were looking at the place might have thought that they were being co-opted into the orthodoxy of Anglo-Irish literature's intent. This past of dispossession and humiliation, which served as palliative to the present, is in the background, I suggest, to so much of O'Neill's work. It constitutes a, a fragile structure. The lash, when I think of Long Day's Journey Tonight, I have a sense of how the lash falls on the most proximate. But people who are and should be, and there is a striving to be loved. But equally, they are vulnerable, even if their vulnerability is of a different kind. And the scalpel is falling on the personal histories. And at a certain point in that great work, Long Death Journey Tonight, it falls not only on the particular constructions of a of, on the personal histories, but it goes on to fall on the constructions of a past that have been placed on top of the common shared myth of dispossession. 
the dramatic force increases when it's not only the personal identity and the esteem of the character on stage that is destroyed in the violence of the discourse, but the previously communal mythic source and its structure is itself attacked. The tragedy will not be relieved, of course, by any sentimental reconciliation or resolution. This is O'Neill being faithful to what I've suggested with the Greek le lecture. The conclusion is stark, and this, I think, may have caused an additional problem for O'Neill in terms of his audiences, who may have wished the tragedy to be relieved by some form of reconciliation. But that, of course, would have contradicted both the realist intention of the author and the classical form from which he drew. It might also not be expected from a migrant population invoking the name of a peasantry, but who are members of what was little less than a new urban underclass from which they were intent on escaping and for which they would make whatever changes are necessary, including changes in the definitions of what was religion and nationalism. What is truly astonishing to me is the sheer range and depth of O'Neill's work. And looking back at it, one is, I think, asked to look at it sometimes through the prism of Genet or Beckett. That's what suggests itself. Play after play appears and the voices of the excluded come up from below. Voices from below, from settings where there is an intensity of experience, of sensual excess, and you've just heard some of it, of what is ephemeral, but yet for all that is deeply and most profoundly human. It is less the case of the playwright falling into such circumstances as material for theatre. Rather, it is the case of such experiences being brought into the light of an audience's experience. The exercise cannot ever, as O'Neill warned, be propaganda. But yet it is intended to be revelatory, and in that intention it is potentially a contribution that is profoundly emancipatory. I see this in the work of Tom Murphy. I, see that I wrote in, in the 80s of the parallels with what Eugene O'Neill's work, and for example, Tom Murphy's Whistle in the Dark. And if O'Neill had the melodies, Murphy's had the carnies, champions of the world. And I think in the work of both writers, the tension between the strategies of existence, if you like, and also the intergenerational conflict that inevitably arises is present in both writers. The early production of Tom Murphy's plays in London had a somewhat similar experience to what greeted some of O'Neill's works, such as The Hairy Ape or All God's Children. Not only were conservative sensibilities offended, but the conventions of the theatre itself were perceived as being challenged. In the case of the early London productions of Tom Murphy's plays, the response was incredible. Audiences, I must say, thankfully changed. For example, when Harold Hobson and Kenneth Tynan, and these are the ones when as young students studying English language literature, as Carother I would know, we read every week to get a sense of what was acceptable. But I think both of them are horrified at Murphy's, the young Tom Murphy's plays, one stating that he would not like to meet Mr Murphy after dark, and the other stating that if any Irishman was left in London at the weekend, the Home Secretary would not have done his job. 
And yet, as President of Ireland, when I was in London, to look at the, the production of Murphy's cycle of plays, it received several ovations. And so it is a source of hope that time honours the brave in literature. Now, speaking of time, and O'Neill's work was criticised for so often for its sheer length and the long monologues. Tom Murphy also experienced the suggestion from critics that he might shorten such work as the Gilles concert. I remember going with Tom to the Bristol Harvey Cream morning breakfast, critical breakfast, after the Gilles concert. One of the questions was, should he not have had consideration from the people going home on the bus to the, to the suburbs? And Tom replied to say, when I'm doing my next work for the Abbey, I'll begin with the Dublin bus timetable. <laughs> I think, too, there is something that both writers have that I think has been quite wonderful. And those of you who are in the work of producing and those of you who are directing and teaching about that and acting and the rest of it. And that is when some lines occur which take off on their own and they might sing. I think of one of Murphy's lines, and she sang her song to the moon. And they have a life of their own, providing an unanticipated joy for actors and audiences alike. But I think then coming to us, what the, the nub of what I have to say then, I find in O'Neill's work a wrestling with contradictions. There is the price paid for the loss of certainty, a certainty that had been provided in a simple version of faith, replete with reassuring rituals. And you have just heard it, I think. Uh, also, I'm referring to my wife's what she said, rather than what the phone. But I that price for this certainty, that I'm wrong to describe it as loss, because it is never truly gone. It, in fact, remains in its fragmented condition to torment. There is the price paid, I think, as well, for this loss, what is better put as a simple version of faith, replete with reassuring rituals that come to be regarded as this great sense of loss. It is an experience of a form of faith that cannot be recovered, but neither sensory indulgence from below our consumption of any shallow social experience in its modernizing context are proving to be an inadequate substitute. The objective experience of the migrants on whom O'Neill drew was not a passive one either, either in terms of their new settings or indeed in terms of them moving from one generation to another. New values had emerged, were emerging, at both the point of destination in the United States and at home. New values had become dominant in Ireland, and new values were being forged, as I said, among the migrant population. Both were highly individualistic, and these changes affected religious religions, they affected nationalisms, and they affected cultural communities. And thus, both Tom Murphy in his day and Eugene O'Neill are writing out of the flux of all that is taking place, which is heavily contradictory. At once what is being communal is invoked, and yet what is rapidly individualistic is being sold. Irish historiography in recent times is coming to terms with a shift in values 
that took place and the significance of the post-famine adjustment in terms of the heightened importance that became attached to land, property and respectability. Those who starved but who survived and could stay would come to value possession and they would chase respectability, the respectability of property ownership. Indeed, there is a primitive violence associated with land ownership, which recurs again and again through the Irish War of Independence, and in particular through the Irish Civil War, where different actions were justified on the basis of a nationalism, but in reality were land-based. And then too, it is earlier maybe, there was an aggressive view of the world emerging in the literature, I think of Liam O'Flaherty's Two Lovely Beasts, where the old mother can say in criticism of her son, a man must have a good greed for the world in him. The Irish migrant experience was not immune from this. And while Eugene O'Neill's work exposes the falsity of insatiable consumption and the society that is based on it, much of the lived life of his varying partners and family members and all those anarchic settings includes a search for the security of property. The contradiction of communal and individualistic values had crossed the Atlantic. The search for respectability, assisted by property aggrandizement, fits neatly with an authoritarian Jansenist clericalism, and upward mobility was has been defined in, in such a way that radicalism, in fact, has, could easily depart both politics, society, culture, and spirituality. In Ireland, the old country, the Irish society of the last years, of the 19th century and early 20th century, was one that had transitioned from a society of landlords and tenants to one of smallholders. A rural, rural grazier class had also consolidated its position, a native predator, that would prove less easy to dislodge as it invoked both faith and nationalism. Eugene O'Neill's middle name, we should not forget, is Gladstone. Eugene Gladstone O'Neill. And this invokes the British parliamentarian who is associated with the land acts, gradualism, and the acceptance of some need of our modicum of Irish self-rule. And yes, when I gave the Thomas Flanagan lecture in New York, we were in the eve of a decade of commemorations. I gave us the title of my lecture that night, Remembering and Imagining Irishness. I was preparing at that time a number of papers, drawing on people like Paul Ricard and Richard Carney and others, and Hannah Arendt. It is a challenging field, and I was conscious of the need, for example, to dispose of any bogus amnesia in relation to the sources of conflict in Irish history. I sought to acknowledge the new scholarship on the complex sources of conflict. I was conscious of the danger of a bland version of historical change that was not amenable to any critique of empire, for example, dominating the period of commemoration. And there's a huge difference between allowing people to remember differently or remember competing events in a different way and demanding of them that you have some kind of constructed, imposed common memory. As I look back on the use then I made of people like Ricard and Darant and Khan and all of those others, I saw that even through the task of an open and real revision was difficult, it was absolutely essential. Critiquing the imperialist work 
is the slowest I found, was the slowest, remains the slowest, and in some respects it is a work that has almost yet to be gone. On that occasion I said at the Thomas Flanagan lecture, and I've had no reason to change my mind since, I want to take advantage of this opportunity to consider how Ireland has been, and must now again be renewed through memory and imagination. In Irish, the beautiful word is sauliacht. Renewing Ireland and with it our sense of what it means to be Irish is one of the most urgent challenges facing us at present. It is a challenge which encompasses and underpins any economic renewal and also goes so far beyond it. It is an exercise of empowerment in constructing an ethical relationship with others. And it can be emancipatory in our contemporary condition, in freeing us from models of economy and society, which are not only failing, as I said, but which are disastrous in their social consequences. And I went on to suggest, this is neither a new exercise or a new challenge for Irish people. I suggest that the Irish have repeatedly mined the past to meet the needs of its present. We've done so not as sentimentalists, but as modernizers, and contrary to the character often drawn of us, we are among the greatest of modernizers, as Declan Kybert has often pointed out, innovative and adaptive to a rare degree. And that is an insight which is best preserved, maybe, among the Irish diaspora, better preserved among the Irish diaspora than in Ireland itself. What remembering and imagining have in common? Remembering, remembering and imagining, having common, is myth-making. The one remembering is often initiated so as to achieve a healing, find a rationalization, construe an event in such a way as to be both, as indeed you have heard me introduced, as I put it, a warm cloak for the self and a dagger for the threatening other. The other imagining needs myth to retain belief, not merely as assurance or reassurance, but as a mechanism for the retention of hope in the unrealized possibilities of being human, truly free, in emancipatory, celebratory, joyous coexistence with and through others on this vulnerable planet on which we share life. I speak of it more recently in a number of speeches as the only definition of community worthwhile is a community of vulnerabilities. And the only way of solving global problems is by seeing it globally as a planet of shared global vulnerabilities. We're so far from that consciousness. And myth-making is not confined as practice or admission to us Irish. But I think it is not immodest to claim that we've excelled at it in our different ways, in different times, in different circumstances, from different sentinel outposts. And so often the consequences as they were in the case of O'Neill, of having invented instruments invoked for defence that ended up being destructive, not only for those we opposed or were proximate to us, but for ourselves. It is in literature that we Irish, and through the work of the two greatest writers, for example, that I have been quoting, have perhaps laid bare the full creative potential of myth-making and the price that attends it. That achievement is not divorced, however, from historical context. It carries the burden of history, but flies from it, making something new. This can happen, will happen, again and again. And that is the stuff of hope, which more, and it is so much more than any mere empty optimism. 
James Joyce drew on so much of what there is in the memory baggage of his people. Yet he did not seek to place it or surrender it to what he inherited as the form of the novel as it prevailed at his time. The choice and trap of excellence of imitation. So powerful now at the heart of our commercial activities that was available to him within the prevailing genre was not chosen. Rather, he and his novel Ulysses brought something entirely new into the world, as we are challenged now to do in a rediscovery of connection between economic, economy, ecology, and ethics, as I have suggested. A return to the holistic version of Terra, of terra Matre, for example. An ancient myth transacted in oral tradition Soil reworked and reworn became a frame for Joyce, for something contemporary and mould-breaking. It became a vehicle for what silences had sought to cover. Parnell was mentioned, for intimacies forbidden. Racism's thinly disguised, the citizen, and fates no longer trusted, and then, unfortunately, not easily discarded without consequence, and simply never forgotten. All of this creates a more challenging context for a writer such as Eugene O'Neill, working in the flux of an exciting urbanism. For remember, the song that prevailed was now a song of the city, no longer, as Josiah Strong would put it, city is the result of the fall, the rural areas are what God created. The song was now a song of the city with all its layers of humanity. And I think of those early essays I read of Simmel, the metropolis and mental life, an industrial system of material form replete with winners and losers in a wild capitalism that would open new wounds, psychic, social and racial. Wounds that are open today that no bland or affecting language can mask. In their myth-making, then, Irish people have had to be modernizers again and again, and are called again to be modernizers in different circumstances of adversity at home and abroad, and in truth circumstances has given them rewards from both its necessity and its promise. It is in transcending the challenges of transience of migration that Irish people have, through famine, migration, exile, colonization, humiliation, being forced to be modernizers again and again. I could argue that faced with new forms of financialized global speculative capital, that it is not only the migrants of our time, 64 million of them, but the structures of thought that pour them into a set of vulnerabilities must change. A migrant sensibility is a valuable sensibility. It enables structure to be seen. It is at its best when that capacity is exercised rather than any dalliance with the vagueness produced from some kind of unthought-out collapse into postmodernism. I think it is in its way such a collapse is of its nature nihilistic in its outcomes. That informed, vigorous Irishness that is being frustrated is the Irishness discernible for me in much of Eugene O'Neill's work. And this is what I believe served as background to the often feverish mind of Eugene O'Neill, a modernizing instinct that saw in the modernism that had arrived in social form something deeply unsatisfactory. 
This, I think, for example, is what leads him to suggest, after his long 12-year silence, in an interview given when he was very frail, where he stats that the American dream was not anything more than an opportunity lost. That set of suffering souls and drying out bodies, that set of communities of loss, of which he wrote, was peopled by characters from below, characters drawn to from dysfunctional forms of the family, where the lash could fall with most vicious effect on who was closest. They would fill his plays. Migrants, we must remember, can never forget. They are continually modernizing. And even after the second generation, they are transacting again as they reach the subsile. And in their recoil from the subsile, the mythic subsile that they encounter, the previously sustained emits of previous generations are insufficient. And thus they set about revision of old and the construction of new myths that can both sustain and destroy. So then if Eugene O'Neill provides an example of a vulnerable human being overwhelmed by forces of background economy, social form, repression and loss. But if this is so, and this is why we are all here, we must never forget that he also has left us a legacy of work that continues to inspire those who work in theatre those scholars who seek to locate such work and practice in a literary context. He took risks from which we all benefit, and his work has provided inspiration for so many brilliant dramatists, such as Arthur Miller and many others. And while his name may be sometimes recalled in the media as a Nobel laureate or in terms of his four Pulitzer Prizes, we in Ireland are honoured that you have all come to discuss his work this work of a great Irish-American literary giant, and at a time when he has at last been recognised, I hope, as such a significant part of the Irish canon. Would Eugene O'Neill be pleased? May I leave you with this quote from Carol Bird of Theatre Magazine, who said of O'Neill in 1924, interviewing Eugene O'Neill is like extracting testimony from a reluctant witness. In fact, to use the word interview in connection with him is to imply a, a misnomer. Certainly, it is in an, in an applicable designation. An interview presupposes a colloquy, a flow of words between two persons. Nothing more erroneous could be circulated about. Silence, silence, more questions, probings, attempts to secure opinions, statements, anything but monosyllables, futility. Suddenly, I'm overcome with a sense of the ridiculous. Here are two people whose very careers oppose this sort of conduct. A playwright who deals in words, a writer who juggles them daily. Sitting across from each other in silence, apparently overcome with shyness. What would O'Neill think of the banquet to which we are now invited? I think I know what his father would have think. May I wish you all every success in, in your work and your silences. And thank you for coming to honour Eugene O'Neill and thank you for visiting Galway and Ireland. Mila Buikas, Karamila Mahagi, Sartesh, Sir Thank you.